who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying to find our way to the dream realm. It's episode 430 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. I know there's a lot of excitement this week because Sandman is now streaming on Netflix. After all these years, it is finally here. The adaptation of the DC Vertigo series from Neil Gaiman is here. And yeah, I got a chance to talk to the cast and the creators, including Neil Gaiman and showrunner Alan Heinberg. You're also going to hear from Boyd Holbrook, Vivian Archimpong, Gwendolyn Christie, Jenna Coleman, and so many more members of the cast as we kind of dive in and try to get all the secrets of the Sandman. Now that you've gotten a chance to see the series or if you're thinking about watching it, get some really good insight into that as well. Also going to go back and talk about the final season of Motherland Fort Salem once again, this time with Tony Giroux, who plays Adil on the series. He has a really unique perspective about what's going on, especially this season, so I can't wait for you to hear that. I'm also going to review Prey this week, the new Hulu Predator movie. I'll talk about that with spoiler-free. Also, Lego Star, Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation. And yeah, the whole Batgirl movie debacle, I'm really going to get into that. You're not going to want to miss that coming up later on in the show. But first, let's talk about something happy. Let's talk about the Sandman with the cast and creative team and do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. My name is uh, Liam Sharp. I draw Wonder Woman. I co-founded Mayfire. And I'm a dear and close friend of the Down and Nerdy podcast. A series decades in the making, some thought would never actually be made. The Sandman is premiering now on Netflix, and I was so happy that I get a chance to talk to the cast at San Diego Comic-Con this year and the creators of the series as well. First up was Boyd Holbrook, who plays the Corinthian 
on the series. And oh, you know the first question had to be about that makeup. Well, for the Corinthian, there was obviously a, a trick doing the, the teeth for eyes. And it was a, kind of a 50-50 a, a between a little bit of prosthetic and then digitally making the mechanics of the eyes talk through teeth, if that makes sense. So it was really um, not a laborious pro uh, process that I sat in for hours and hours and hours. It was very simple and it only happens a couple times throughout the show. So it wasn't very difficult. The only difficulty was actually wearing the glasses. I had, we were in the pandemic, right? So I didn't really have ch a chance to put them on at all. So the time that I did put them on, the, the very first day I, I hadn't worn them and I straight up went blank. I could not remember any dialogue, anything. It was just a bit shocking to be underneath, encompassed in complete darkness. So that took a second to get used to, but other than that, it was, um, it was a really fun process. How familiar was Board Holbrook with the Sandman comics before getting his role? Well, he tells us. I'm familiar with them in that I read a couple in high school and I saw them a lot. I mean, they're everywhere. But I didn't even really know about the Corinthian because the Corinthian is only in the doll's house and I hadn't read that one. So I knew Neil from uh, American Gods and a couple of his novels, but this just fairly sort of a novice beginner, I guess. I really wanted to follow up on that, so I asked Boyd if that was actually an asset to him in a way for the role. Do you feel like that actually lets you bring a little bit more of your own spin on the character, though, not having that preconceived knowledge? Yeah, yeah. You know, for like Logan, for example, I mean, I, I, I knew that Donald Pierce was a character, and I, I really just took it and ran with it, and I, I kind of applied the same process and figuring it out with the Corinthian because there, there was only the one comic to, to draw from. And what we did was we tried to make this a character that was, had been around for so many hundreds of years. There's a, a definite sophistication that came along with that. And a, a character that you would invite into your homes, you know, mistakenly. And that's how he would lure his victims rather than sort of at a a, a, a abrasive character that would overpower you and sort of, you know, force his way into your home. In his manipulation, he would wel you would welcome him into your home. Another great question by one of the journalists at the roundtable asking him about the relationship between the Corinthian and Jed. Check out his answer. They're friends, and the Corinthian doesn't really have a lot of friends, and so you get to see this tenderness and this really gentleness from the, from the Corinthian that you haven't been able to see before and he's like a big brother or a, a, a sort of what is the program the father the brotherhood the big brother bigger, yeah yeah and I, I kind of approached it like that and he is just such a powerhouse of a kid like a little actor and such a fun kid to be around and so that was for me the most enjoyable relationship because I, I, I fluctuated between so many different of the other characters that I actually got to spend most time with Jed. He's the only person I got to save in terms of my other sort of devilish ways with, with everyone else. Uh, he's The Corinthian's almost like how Jeffrey Dahmer would want to keep his victims. The Corinthian doesn't ever get to experience what humans get to go through for any emotions. 
So since he can't be able to have those emotions and have those experiences, it's almost like trophies that he keeps. So he, in a weird way, he gets to keep their emotions, but their, 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 <laughs> their embodiments. Next up, Jenna Coleman, who plays Joanna Constantine in The Sandman. And of course, she'd worked with Neil Gaiman before, and maybe he thought she was perfect. But listen to her talk about what her introduction to the character was like. It was funny. It came to me like very coded what it what it was exactly. And initially, I didn't even know it was Constantine. Um, but what I knew was uh, the character, like the kind of the dialogue, the patter, the banter, the it really like bounced off the page. But it was all very like kind of coded and intriguing how it came to me. The Sandman is definitely bringing something new and different to the table. So I wanted to ask Jenna Coleman about the uniqueness of her Constantine character in this story. This is probably the most unique version of this character that we've seen on screen. So how, how did you go about preparing for the role in the first approach? A lot of learning how to do an exorcism. <laughs> I actually I had to learn Latin and and actually so it was really funny because I was like walking around London. I was learning French at the time up for the serpent at the same time as learning Latin for the exorcisms on this, which are very very different. Um, so I was walking around London and I was like, oh my God, it's insane! I'm walking around talking to myself, doing exorcisms like as I'm like doing my groceries. Did you get the eye turn like? <laughs> what has she done? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I really did. I was like, oh, you look actually insane. And there was a lot of quite a conversation. So we really went through a costume journey on it because there was a lot of, are we doing like the trench coat, the John Constantine? I, at one point I had like dungaree kind of like suspender belt thing. We had those. Um, and then we decided like Alan in particular, this iteration was the, the very much the upgraded version. Like this is Constantine who's risen in the ranks and is now exorcism to the queen. Like exorcist to the queen so it, it was like we wanted to see the earlier days and then the more put together version and then it was a conversation about you know looking at the other versions and I just felt like with this in particular I, I looked at Keanu's Constantine and this version in particular it was so clear to me what to do off the page I was like actually I'm kind of want to take this this Joanna Constantine in this form and, and run with it so I didn't go back and watch the other Constantines, but I use the comic book a lot. I love that someone asked what she loved about her character because I thought it really added some really good info and insight. Check it out. She's kind of roguish, cynical, and it's all about like humor and deflection and dr her dryness and wit. But underneath it is this kind of really wounded, lone warrior. And I think having, having those two things playing and it's all about like deflecting it and not letting anybody close. So there's, there's a lot of, it feels like there's a lot of, there's so much depth to play with and then to have her meet dream and have this meeting of minds of these two characters where actually the one place that she usually hides and where she would hide is her dreams and he sees her there so it's the dynamic between the two of them it was like she's also not very easily impressed I don't think and this kind of like mutual respect yet kind of battle of the egos and kinship between them it was a really interesting dynamic so yeah dream of the endless meets Constantine but it's it's um I like the fact that there's a real pragmatism to her it's like she's going about her everyday business and and I think there's a real like cost of that like it's it's having the gift is a, like a blessing and a curse Last up for Jenna Coleman, who was her favorite character to play off of? And her answer probably won't surprise you. Well, like, really, all my stuff's with Dream, so with Tom. And that was amazing because he 
it's quite extraordinary because he kind of working with him I remember on the first I, the first couple of scenes even seeing the way his hand moves and everything's like very slow and it's like he's completely present and he's listening and he's there with you but he's also as if he's like a thousand places at once and it's like I don't know how he achieved that but it's this this kind of really ethereal nature that he's in the room with you but he's some kind of other he's like some something other is another being he's not entirely human so that was like quite extraordinary to play off next up is rose walker herself vanessa samunyai who plays rose on the sandman and the first question asked of her was about how special the character is to her in that personal connection that she feels to her. She's someone who's very similar to me. She's someone who I was able to go on a journey with. I was growing both as a person and as an actor as I was doing this job and she was subsequently growing. She's someone with a lot of, we were at similar points in our life, I guess, you know, in her journey in the beginning, she wasn't as, so not necessarily selfish, but she, I guess she tried to be too selfless and she thought less of herself and more of others and more of what she needed to do and trying to get everything back together in her life. And she grew and became someone who wanted to take more for herself. And I grew in a very similar way. With such a huge cast of characters, I had to ask Vanessa what characters she enjoyed interacting with the most. Some of the characters in the show that you liked interacting with I liked Matthew a lot. We had really nice interactions. It was nice seeing, you know, a tiny little being who was also kind of confused and new at things. I liked interacting with Dream. We interact much more in the show than in the comics. And it was nice as well to explore all the, for my character to learn all of the magical things in their universe. I think those are like two of my favorite. And there was also Gilbert who Rose has a special relationship with, and that was really nice as well. Of all the cast members of The Same Man, I have to say I was really looking forward to talking to Gwendolyn Christie, and when she sat down, the first question was, how fun is it playing a character like Lucifer Morningstar? I have to say I had a blast. I had an absolute blast. It was really extraordinary because the timing was was strange you know it kind of came about at the very start of the pandemic when we didn't know what was happening I was speaking with Alan and with Neil and I just thought I kind of fell in love with them I thought they were really fantastic people they were so loving and open and really wanted to collaborate and they actually really wanted to know what my ideas were and I wanted the challenge so badly to play something very different from Brienne of Tarth who I love playing but you know, I, I, I want to play such a wide range of roles. And the fact that they could see me as that character was invigorating to me. Maybe worrying, but it was really invigorating. They could see something in me that could work. When I received the scripts, they were incredibly well written and very resolved. It was clearly structured very, very well. And they wanted to talk about the visual sense. We all knew we wanted it to be like the comics and that we wanted we wanted it to have that essence of the comics and that Lucifer to, ret- to retain something of that essence. But they were really open as to how I was going to play the part. And I really, I really appreciated that. And then when I got to work with Tom, he was so dedicated to the role. I mean, really, really, 
was bringing everything to it and taking it so incredibly seriously. He has such integrity as an actor. He's so talented, but he's very respectful. So we could go further in terms of how we treated each other in a space that was respectful and safe and have some fun outside of it. But it became very emotional. I, I really loved it. Lucifer is a very interesting character, but maybe just as interesting is Lucifer's relationship to some of the other characters on the show. Let's see what Gwendolyn has to say about that. I mean, Lucifer's a bit scathing about <laughs> I think Lucifer, as ruler of health, absolutely sees themselves as above and beyond them. But simultaneously, I suspect, is covering up a very deep and secret jealousy of the familial bond. Lucifer is isolated, and I think something that we've all felt during this time is that isolation is also a, a terrible disease, you know. So that, again, it was interesting during that time, because Lucifer in the scene is, makes a reference to belittling those people, so seething with jealousy. It's hard to talk about The Sandman without talking about the Neil Gaiman, who is the executive producer and creator of Sandman Comics, and also Alan Heinberg, executive producer and showrunner of the series. So what was the most important aspect from the comics to adapt to the series? Here's Alan on that. The diner episode was the most challenging because of the way the comic book itself is structured and built. And once I sort of figured out how I wanted to do it, it was the most rewarding experience too. I think that was the most radical departure from the structure of the comics, but also the most rewarding. And Jamie Childs did an amazing job directing it and it ended up being my favorite. But how faithful of an adaptation is this really? Let's hear from both Alan and Neil on that. That was paramount to me and to Neil and to every department head and every actor. That was our guiding what, what was magic about this whole thing was that you had a show being made by Sandman fans and being crewed by Sandman fans and being staffed by Sandman fans. And a few weeks ago, I was in London walking through a street market on a chilly Sunday morning and all of a sudden, one of the props people who'd been on Sandman the show just came running over and said, you're Neil Gaiman, I just have to tell you, I, I was doing props on Sandman and I'm such a fan and my brother is such a fan and it's the coolest job I've ever got in my whole life and it was, I don't know if I'll ever do anything that cool again because I was doing props on Sandman and I'm like, that makes me so happy. So those were our people. You talk to Gwendolyn, you talk to Tom, you talk to these guys and as far as they're concerned, they're doing something that is... I, I will use the word kind of advisedly, but you can make fun of me if you like, sacred. They're doing something kind of holy. It's, it's big and it's important and it's not to be taken lightly. And that knowledge is what they bring with them. Talking to Kirby about death, she got the part over hundreds and hundreds of people. We'd seen hundreds and hundreds of people before we got to Kirby. She got the part because she could say the lines right. It was only today, talking to her, that I twigged that she said the lines right because she'd been a Sandman fan and she loved death and she knew what death sounded like and how those lines should be delivered. So she delivered them as death rather than being an actress getting a 
bunch of sides and going, oh, this is weird kind of dialogue, okay, I'll say it. So I think for all of us, that was the most important thing of all. Getting the right characters is huge, but so is getting the right look. So I wanted to ask Alan and Neil about that. Talk about how important that is. How, how important was it also, not just to get the right characters, but to get the right look, and to get the right sets, to get just the right shots, for each particular scene to bring that out personally. It was very important, but also very organic. Because everybody was steeped in the book, we made all of our choices according to well, what would happen if we if we did what's here, and then if it didn't work, well, why isn't working, and what can we do to augment it and make sure that the same story is being told and that the book is being evoked? Because even if we're not, you know, slavishly doing it panel by panel, I really wanted the audience, if they'd read the books, to feel like this is the Sandman I remember. And then to go back and reread it and and see why we did what it is that we did and what we added and why we added it and so we always had the book with us. Everybody had an iPad with the book all the time, but we weren't slaves to it. We but were inspired and elevated. By and, it. and the flip side of that is, I could get a message from Alan asking me something about the diner, and I could go to Mike Dringenberg and say, hey, when you did the diner, was it based on a real place? And he was like, oh yeah, it was this diner that was in Salt Lake City, and I went there and I drew it all day and I sketched it. And here is a link to photos that people have put online, and here's even their menu. And we took the menu of the diner that Mike Dringenberg drew 24 hours in, and nobody knows, nobody cares except us. But that's the menu that's in the diner, and that's the, the menu design. Finally, we got a chance to chat with Vivian Archimpong, who plays Lucian in the series. And the first question had to be, hey, what's it like being the keeper of the realm? Well, I mean, some people have also called Lucian the boss. So I'm going to kind of go with that. <laughs> Incredible. A huge responsibility, but one that she... Is an honour for her to undertake. She's hardworking. She does it to the best of her ability. She goes above and beyond, and she just wants the dreaming to be restored. She stayed whilst Dream. We didn't know where he was, and kept it going. So pretty amazing, really. A privilege. And to take it one step further, someone else asked, "Hey, what's the relationship like and those interactions like with Dream?" their relationship is I don't even want to say complex I don't even think it's complex he is a complex character he is broody he's hard work he's got a lot going on but she sees something in him she's loyal loyal to a fault and I think the dynamic that they have she's almost his moral compass she stands back she observes she sees what she needs to see advises him in the best way that she can in order for him to succeed because that's what she wants and I think there's a lot of love there throughout the series don't want to give too much away but we do see a bit of friction between them because you know she has been there being the boss and so there's a little bit of friction there and you can hear in their voices how much care these actors have taken into just really diving in to these roles and the intricate details that they've waited the creative team and the actors waited so long to just bring to life, which is finally going to be happening right now. As a matter of fact, Sandman is streaming right now 
on Netflix. And was it worth the wait? You'll have to see for yourself. And you be the judge. Thanks again for the cast and the creative team of the Sandman and, of course, Warner Brothers for having me in the press room at Comic-Con to talk about Sandman. Up next, we'll switch gears and talk once again about Motherland for Fort Salem. I'm going to talk about a deal with Tony Guru. That's going to be next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. This is Taylor Hickson, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yes, this is the final season of Motherland Fort Salem. I'm still sad about it. No, I'm not going to stop saying it because, you know, we've only got a few episodes left. But what I love to do is get a chance to chat with as many members of the cast as I can before it is all over. And this man, Adil himself, Tony Giroux. Tony, how you doing? Good, good, good. So you've been with the show pretty much since the beginning. So other than this being the final season, was there anything about this season that made it feel maybe a little different from the previous two? Well, I mean, for the character Adil, you know, he was really part of the gang for this third season. You know, beforehand, first season, he comes in as the outsider. Then second season, there was still that sort of turmoil and figuring out his place with Abigail within the world of Fort Salem. And in this third season, to me, Adil is really where he's imprinting himself with being part of the unit, with being Abigail's second hand. And to me, that was that was the kind of key approach to to Adil in the third season. Absolutely, man. Now, I think it's safe to say it takes a special guy to win the heart of Abigail Bellwether. So what's your favorite thing about their relationship? Because it's definitely a unique one. Mm-hmm. I think it's opposites attract in a lot of ways. And what I love about that, I think it's a more traditional approach to a couple, which is, you know, there's sometimes the couple that doesn't necessarily have the same perspectives on the world, doesn't have the same ways to behave or to even go about their ideals. But Abigail and Adele, I find, find a way, you know, to make it work. And obviously, I think in this third season, you know, you see Adil moving more towards Abigail's way of dealing with the world, right? And I think they find the common ground of saying, okay, there's some bad people that we got to take care of. And as Adil, he's got to sacrifice some of his values, you know, in order to roll with the current world that he's presented with. And I think that's how they complement each other really well. And I think also on the flip side, I think that Adil brings a softer side to Abigail. You know, she's because she's so army, like military driven, you know, from a huge family heritage of that. And I find that or I would hope, you know, that Adil has brought that softer side to her. As much as you can soften a bellwether. I mean, really. Yeah. But, but yeah, you're, you're totally right about that because you definitely have softened her up a little bit. I mean, she's very strong-willed to say the least and has that leadership mentality, it seems like, at all times. We've seen many times, though, where Adil's kind of stepped back, like you said, and just kind of Abigail just kind of led the charge. So is it refreshing for you to not just be playing this stereotypical male character who always seems to default into the leadership role or do the whole rescue the damsel in distress thing? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's what I loved about that relationship between the two and about Adil. I think it redefines masculinity in a way that we're not used to, 
or at least I, that's the way I wanted to bring it forward. And to me, there's still aspects of masculinity that I wanted to embody, such as, you know, the, the sacrifice for the female or this idea of the, the support for the female, no matter what. But I agree with you that he is, you know, allows Abigail to take the lead in a lot of ways. And, and I thought it was, to me, it's a really interesting way to bring a certain balance with a couple, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have to be what we've always known as, as what it was before, you know, the male taking charge, the male wearing the pants or whatnot, and the woman following. I think that this relationship beautifully balances the two without, I never felt as Adil as being submissive. You know, it was always about being supportive and taking action when, when Adil needed to. Balance is a very good word. That is a perfect way to describe it, I think, because that's exactly what they have. But that is not the only lady in his life, Tony, because we know how powerful Kalita is as well. So talk about how strong that bond is between Adil and his sister and what their journey's been like this season. They're brother and sister that are bonded so deeply, and they're the they're pretty much the only people that they have left of, you know, their heritage, of their culture. And so that bond is really strong. And so when they separate, you know, I think it was in episode four, it's extremely difficult for Adil, you know, and I, and I think in a lot of ways, Kalita has a certain wisdom that Adil doesn't have yet, a wisdom of what has to be done for the whole, for the collective, you know, for the greater good of the world, you know, for the greater balance, perhaps even. And for Adil, it's harder to accept, but there is that innate trust of Kalita's knowledge and Kalita's wisdom, right? And then we are in a matriarchal society. And I think inherently, deep down, he trusts her, but it, it, it's always hard for, on, a, on the emotional front. You know, Adil remains a young man and to accept decisions that tear your heart apart, I think is where the complexity comes in. And at the end of the day, it's still his baby sister. I mean, you can't mm -hmm. not have that protectiveness for a baby sister, no matter what kind of society you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks for bringing that up, James. It's, yeah, I think having a, anybody who has siblings can can relate. And I mean, especially if, if you're the bigger sibling, you're going to want to look after the person, whether that person ends up being the president of whatever country or, you know, an athlete or just you're going to want to protect them or, with their bad boyfriends and any danger that might be out there. So well, that was definitely part of this, it. Since this is your last season, hopefully you don't have to worry about the bad boyfriend part. You want to just, you'll just steer clear of that. You won't, yeah. have to, <laughs> you won't have to deal with that in the last few episodes. So that's one thing I don't want to have to deal with. Yeah. But we saw in episode seven, this past week's episode where Rayo finally returns to the group and there were a lot of emotions there, and you were right there in the thick of that. So what was it like to be a part of that scene and seeing that original trio get back together after everything you guys have been through so far this season? Oh, man, yeah, it was so emotional, I think, like you said, and it's so, I think it was so rewarding. It was such a big journey that everybody went on, both, you know, on screen and off screen, and to have that reunion, you know, that trio that started off with the pilot. And we've grown with them and Adil as well, and myself, you know, as Tony as well. And so for them to be separated for, you know, five episodes in the third season was quite big. And I think we all felt that longing both as the characters, but also as actors. And so when that reunion happens, it's incredibly heartwarming 
And as the character Adil, you know, I think seeing his girl being re reunited with her unit, which is her family, it's, incre it's incredibly heartwarming. And I think for Adil also, it's makes him think about his re potential reunion with you know his sister and the joy that he can experience seeing somebody else somebody else experience that, even though for him he doesn't have that. Talking to Tony Drew, who plays Adil on Motherland Fort Salem, which you watch every Tuesday on Freeform and again next day on Hulu. Tony, you don't get to get your hands dirty much on the show, but we definitely got to see Adil in some battles in this past week's episode too. So how much do you enjoy that? And could we actually see more of that before we see that final episode this season? Mm. Well, without giving spoilers, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I personally, as Tony, really enjoy that, uh, you know, getting into the action, getting into something that's, yeah, that requires a little bit more physical movement. You know, but it's something that I love about Adil is that he only takes action when it's absolutely necessary. You know, and it, it, he's never been one to seek out violence. I think throughout his growth, he's understood that now violence is the only way to take down a system that doesn't work for him or for the, you know, the greater good. And so there's moments, you know, where we've seen him take action in a violent way, in a way going against his original values, where it's just, well, there's no other way. And that, you know, I've, I, I really respect and think it's a beautiful trait uh, to have. You know, as for future, the rest of the episodes, I'm just going to say stay tuned. There might or might not be some uh, kicking ass. There you go. There you go. That's what we want to hear. So we know how the women feel about Alder's return, which we've seen recently as well. But can, how much can you tell us about how Adil feels about her being back, especially having that connection with Kalita that we saw recently? Yeah, I think it's he's forced to trust her, but yet because of the past, it's hard. But because Kalita's in her hands and Kalita says that it's okay that and she's deciding to follow, it's the ultimate trust test where you're thrown in the deep end and you're, you're just saying, okay, I just hope that it all works out. And that to me is a really scary thought, you know, both for Adil, but also, you know, as Tony, it's this idea. I, I don't think anybody generally wants to put their trust into someone that they don't really trust. But there, you know, because there has been some changes to Alder as well, it's Adil is, I think, just trying to listen and gauge on who this new person is, you know, always trying to assess before making any snap decisions. There's a lot to unpack there for sure. No doubt about that. So mixed into this hardship that you've got that you guys have had, had going on pretty much the entire season, even going into the last season, what's happening with this season and the the quest to find the first song? I thought is I think it's been really really cool. So how interesting has it been to be to even be a part of that story, which you could argue is the foundation of this series itself. Doing that here in this final season. Yeah, we're talking about you know the kind of origin story. I think what Elliot Lawrence created each season. And this, the first song being the big element of the third season is uh, absolutely fascinating. And I think to see how, how the little pieces have to come together in order for something much bigger to happen, I think, and I think it reflects, you know, to a lot of things, personally, the way I see it around, you know, what is it that we have to do in order to create real change in the world? You know, it's the first song in Motherland 
I think represents the quest that we kind of all have to take in order to really fight for something that we believe in, which is, you know, takes a lot of work, takes a lot of, a lot of struggle, a lot of obstacles, but ultimately that drive to, you know, find balance again or to, you know, whatever the first song is going to do, that's something to uh, find out as we keep watching. Oh, that unpredictability. I love that so much. Tony, before I let you go, I've kind of been asking everybody about this because we're talking about, like I said, the final season of the show and, and how you all been together for so long. You look like you have such a fun group. What is the thing that you're going to miss the most about being a part of Motherland Fort Salem? You know, I think it's become a really great family. I think what this show stands for has really been also reflected in the people that were on set, both the cast and the crew. You know, this idea of, I think we're tackling, or the show is tackling on issues of, you know, marginalization, people who've never really fit in, people have always felt different and normalizing that. And to me, that has brought together the cast in a way that I've never experienced on another show, which is really about celebrating difference and living within those differences, you know, which sometimes can lead to difficulties but it was a really inspiring set to be on for that always you know trying to figure out a way to communicate amongst different cultures different sense of identities that was a great experience for me and we are weeks away from finding out how it's all going to end because motherland fort salem of course airing every tuesday night on freeform you can also watch it again the next day on hulu as well and we'll have to see what's going to be coming down to the end for Adele and Abigail as well. Tony, thank you so much, man, for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. And like he was saying, Adele's become quietly more and more a part of what's happening with the unit and what's happening on Motherland. And I'm so glad I got a chance to get his perspective on that because there's so many great things happening this season. And I know that I can't wait to see how it all ends. I know you can't either. Motherland, Fort Salem, like I said, every Tuesday on Freeform and next day on Hulu. Again, thanks to Tony Giroux for joining me to talk about Motherland Fort Salem. Up next, let's dive into some reviews and talk about Prey from Hulu, the new Predator movie. We'll talk about that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Blair Redford from The Gifted, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's the Predator's first hunt on Earth, and it's now streaming on Hulu. Prey is now here, and I want to give a spoiler-free review of this. I know the movie's out now. I got to see it a little bit early. I could do spoilers, but I'm just not going to do that. So this is basically set in the 1700s. We've got 300 years in the past, and you have Naru, who's a member of the Comanche Nation. She's a skilled female warrior. At least she will be. Anyway, and she's one of very many that are fighting to protect her tribe against the Predator. But that's not all that she's fighting against. That much I could tell you for sure. What do you think it was like being a woman in any situation in the 1700s? You think she was taken seriously even in that tribe? You really think so? Well, you'll find out when you watch this movie for sure. Now, that's not a huge part of this story. That much I'll tell you. For sure, and she does have a supportive family, at least somewhat anyway. And her her brother Tabe, who's played by Dakota Beavers and, and does a wonderful job, is a big, big part of this story and her story as well. But I will say this before I get into how I felt about the story itself. Amber Midthunder is Naru. You want to talk about a star in the making? She's it. Sign her up 
for a lot of different stuff because you're going to be hearing that name and seeing her face on a lot of things. I don't know that we'll see another one of these movies necessarily, but if you want to get her into the action genre any way that you can, please do that because she was fantastic in this movie. And not because of her badassery, and there was some of that, but there was also, again, she is she has aspirations in her tribe, something that most women wouldn't even attempt, which makes her a badass in that regard. But also the fact that, and, and this is not really a spoiler, you're going to see her make mistakes. You're going to see a little bit of hubris there as well. You're going to see her try to do things that she might not be ready for, whether she thinks she's ready for it or not. And that doesn't mean that she's not a badass. It just means that she's willing to dust herself off and pick herself up and keep going. And that, to me, is a better example than just being able to pick up a weapon and be awesome with it immediately. That's not realistic. The realism that's being brought into that character, I think, is really, really good decision by the filmmakers and the writers in this particular sense. And she sells it. You see her in certain moments of this movie, and again, no spoilers, where she thinks she's got it handled, and she doesn't. I mean, she really doesn't. But then you see that confidence start to build, and you see her learning from those mistakes. That's the other thing that I really love about this. Learning from the mistakes is a big part of this. And the other part of this is how the Predator is treated. The Predator character is treated in this movie as well because you get to see the Predator have a, a, a little bit of ups and downs, but still there's a superiority there for sure. We are still talking about the 1700s and you're talking about a Predator that might have a little bit more advanced technology than people on Earth in the 1700s. So let's just keep that in mind as we're going through this thing as well. But you also get to see a lot of interactions with the environment, a lot, a lot of interactions with the predators themselves. Not, I'm not talking about Predator, the alien. I'm talking about Predator, the freaking bears and stuff that are in this forest area. You get to see a lot of wildlife in this film, and I think that that is a really, really good choice, again, by the creative teams in this one, too, because that is a big part of it. And you get to see hunting is a big part of this, and you get to see some of the stuff that you might have you know, experienced with the Comanche Nation back then. And I love that there's a lot of authentic casting there. They actually got Native Americans, or at least mostly Native Americans, to play these Native American roles. And I guess what? Played them very well. Not just for Native Americans playing Native Americans, but actually there was very good acting in this movie across the board. And, there, and that should not go unnoticed and another reason why if you, you know you want to have that authentic casting and there's no reason to not do it when you can find talent like this now there's also other obstacles that are in the way of this nation and again 1700s america you can imagine what some of that is not going to spoil that for you at all but that kind of w works its way into the story as well but you get to see some of some tradition in this they didn't lean too heavy into the traditions of the Comanche Nation. I, if, if I had one criticism, I'd like to see a little bit more of that. I don't think you could put too much more of it in there because you don't want to make this movie too long. And I don't know how attention-keeping that would be for a general audience. As someone who has Native American ancestry, that would interest me a great deal. But at the same time, I don't know 
that that's something that would keep a mass audience's attention, and that's really not the focus of this movie anyway. So it's hard to do that as a spotlight, but they do work it in here and there, and I think that that was a, a really, really nice nod. And again, you want to keep this movie around 90 minutes, which they did. The action was good. I thought that the location that they shot in was really, really great. I thought it really brought things out and enhanced the environment that was around them. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful relationship between Naru and her dog in this thing. And I was very scared for the dog the entire movie. <laughs> I could tell you that much right now. Not going to give you any spoilers there either. But very concerned about the dog, as I always am. You know, that, that, that always makes me upset when they kill the dog. So I, I was very much keeping my eye on that throughout the movie but they made some very smart choices in this thing this was my favorite predator movie since the original by a lot i don't even think it's close it's it's pretty close to being as good as the original in my mind i know that there's there's some people that don't agree with me about that already but i loved this thing you know why one of the reasons i loved it not just because of the stuff that i that i said but at the end of the day it was different it was different in a way that didn't feel like it was being different for the sake of being different. It looked like you were telling a period piece with a character that we know in a more modern era. And you also proved that there are ways to revive a franchise and freshen it up after all of these years. You can do it. It can be done properly. And they didn't overthink it. They kept it simple. They kept the action in there. You built you built a good base with your characters around the Predator. You had a strong lead character with a supporting cast around her. And it all just worked in a big way for me. So if you want to stream Prey on Hulu, I would highly recommend that. I don't think you'll be disappointed. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Prey from Hulu and 20th Century Studios. Up next... Going to be keeping it in the Disney family. Going to talk about Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Summer will be over before you know it. So will you carve out a block of time to watch the Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation on Disney Plus, which is now streaming, by the way. And I'm going to give my spoiler-free review of this. Got to see it. A little bit early and this is basically you know we've got Finn who wants to take his buds on vacation hang out you know they've been through a lot together you know you deserve some relaxing fun in the sun in the post rise of Sky Skywalker movie so you've got Rose you've got Ray's there you got Poe and Chewie and a whole bunch of others and things aren't working out for Finn the way he kind of hoped and you kind of see that in the trailer so that's not really a spoiler so you know, how does he figure out how to fix that? Well, he has some Force Ghost help. And you've seen Obi-Wan Kenobi is a part of this. I could tell you that, you know, Han and Leia are a part of this as well. You even get the, the Emperor working in some summer fun in there too. And all of these different stories, kind of, they're, they're sort of side stories. So it's almost like you're, you're breaking things up into, I don't want to call it a clip show necessarily because it's not that and it's certainly not stuff that we've seen before this is all original stuff but you remember in sitcoms when they used to do clip shows and they would show you events that happened in other episodes it's kind of like that where you've got you've got okay well here's the main story but then here's the story that obi-wan tells finn and here's the story that leia tells finn and things like that and all of those things kind of show finn you know kind of 
where his head should be at with this whole thing and kind of give you the moral of the story, for lack of a better way of putting it. So, And you know what? what's great about something like this? Is it's just fun. And that's exactly what this was. It's fun because it's supposed to be fun. This is not a time to be sitting down and worrying about canon and picking all of these things apart. It's time to throw Obi-Wan in a luau shirt and have him sing on stage. Doing stuff like that, having a little bit of fun in the Star Wars realm is not the end of the world. Is there still some canonical references in this movie? Yeah, there are. But it's... it's you know, are we really going by the letter of the law here? I don't think that we are. And if you are, you're not you're not doing it right. This is not something that you should be putting on and looking to poke holes in because they made the wrong reference here and there. Or the oh the, that's not how their character reacted. It's freaking Lego. Let it go. Just sit back, relax, and have fun with something. And that's one of the morals of this movie, by the way. So if you need to realize that maybe you should be having a little bit of fun. With your Star Wars viewership, that is one of the things that this movie will kind of tell you. You know, it's okay to enjoy things with your friends every now and then and not overthink every damn thing that you're doing. It's almost like this was a secret message to the Star Wars fandom wrapped in a fun summer movie. It's not. I know it's not. But at the same time, that's me overthinking it. You know, you you could kind of take it that way. And the, the voice acting, again you know, very well done across the board because this is just something where you could tell everybody was just kind of having fun with it. It was involved in this project because you're not having to worry about getting blasted on social media for not doing something that Star Wars fans, and I use that term loosely, are going to pick apart when they see it. This is a chance to do something that is outside of the norm for Star Wars, and every now and then doing something like this is just a good idea to remind you that you got to have fun every now and then and see characters like, you know, you see C-3PO in a bathrobe. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. Is it fun? Yeah, it's absolutely fun. And there are some funny moments in this movie as well. And again, just having a lot of fun, and that's what you're supposed to do when you're making a Lego movie of any kind. And Lego Star Wars, they've had a couple of good ones already here recently and I love that Disney Plus and Lucasfilm are giving us these kind of movies especially for my kids who I know love to watch these Lego movies as well so go ahead and check it out for yourself Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation which is now streaming on Disney Plus and just have a little fun with it bring the kids in there as well now I'll do it for my spoiler free review of Lego Star Wars Summer Vacation up next oh boy Do I have some nerd news and some thoughts and frustrations to vent to you next? I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like the only discovery is cost-cutting. It's time for nerd news. And actually, nerd news is usually something I save and record until later in the week. Because, you know, you don't want to make, you want to make sure that, you know what, news breaks and things like that. But let's put that aside for a second. I wanted to record this when I was good and mad. Because that's what makes it more fun. So first, the details. The Wrap was first to report that HBO Max will no longer be releasing the Batgirl movie. It will also not get a theatrical release, which was also kind of being talked about. So this basically means, depending on what report you look at, that they're going to basically 
lose 70 to 90 million dollars by shelving this. That's what went into the production so far. This movie was basically done. They, they, they were doing reshoots and things like that. Final stages of putting this thing together. They had already done a test screening. Again, sources, you know, whether or not that went well, that, that's, again, kind of beside the point. Also, by the way, I want to throw this in there too. The, the Scoob sequel, Holiday Haunt, also being shelved. So those are the two movies that were just basically tossed aside. Now, this is the Leslie Grace-led Batgirl movie, which also was going to have Michael Keaton, which also was going to have Brendan Fraser. So there, there was a lot of excitement surrounding this. And, you know, the, the question was, well, why didn't we see this at Comic-Con? It doesn't make any sense why you wouldn't do anything with this. And now you know why, because they're throwing it on the shelf entirely. So this is a bad look for so many different reasons. And yet another example of Discovery since the acquisition or merger, whatever the hell you want to call it, with Warner Brothers has just basically been throwing things on the trash heap ever since they got here. And before I get into why I'm so upset, one thing I do understand, you got about $3 billion in debt you're trying to pare down. I get it. I understand that that's a lot. But now you're adding another 70 to $90 million by dumping this movie on the trash heap. And I don't understand how that's effective. Adding more debt is not effective when it's doing it this way. Yes, you have to spend money to make money. I'm one of those people that believes in that most of the time. This is one of those instances where you're already almost at the finish line. That would be like if you were running a marathon, you saw the tape in front of you and you went, you know what, now I'm good, and went to Starbucks. Come on, really? This is when you're going to cancel it? The time to cancel it would have been before reshoots. Don't you think? This acquisition is not that fresh. You could have stopped this a lot sooner, and you didn't. And here's the other thing. This might, none of this might be true, but I'm going to go ahead and, and say what it looks like. I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying that this is what they're thinking or doing, but this is what it looks like. It looks like you're shelving things with female superheroes, and, that, and th- that's the truth. And everything that's going on with Aquaman 2, keeping Amber Heard in that movie possibly, and now and, and you're going to just throw Batgirl on, off to the side. You're going to keep The Flash with Ezra Miller, and I'm not even going to detail all of the problems with Ezra Miller because we've been down that road before. You're going to keep that so far and not, and again, not release Batgirl. It doesn't make any sense. And again, if you were going to get rid of a movie, The Flash, yeah, that movie's already in the can. I get it. But there's a lot of money to be saved there. You're going to spend $100 million easy marketing that movie. When it finally comes out, if it finally comes out, they could still put that on the shelf too. I understand that. It's still a little early in the game for that since they keep pushing the release date back. It'll be 2028 before we ever see that damn thing. So we'll see how that goes. But what I'm saying is, is that the optics look terrible. You've got a young star who, the, when the suit was revealed, there was a lot of chatter around this movie before we even saw any trailers or anything like that. You've got a extremely hot pair of directors that have been doing nothing but great things. And you've, you're, you're bringing back Michael Keaton. You created all this excitement only to throw it on the trash pile. And all of this right around the time 
that it's announced that The Flash is in its final season. You canceled basically everything on the CW. And, and I get that. You're trying to sell that network. Sure. Go right ahead. But if I'll, I'll tell you what. If I'm in a writer's room or a director or an actor or anything like that in any upcoming CW series, I hope you're planning your, your, your first and final season if you're, if you're on your first season or you're planning your end because you are trending towards your end. That much I could tell you right now. At least that's the optics that Warner Brothers Discovery is putting out there. That you, if you were part of the previous regime, you are trash to us and we want nothing to do with you whatsoever. And don't think for a second, by the way, Game of Thrones fans, that you're immune to any of this. All of these, all these spinoffs that are supposed to be coming, all of these things that you're so excited about, be careful because you might not get any of it. The Last of Us, will we ever see that now? What on earth could Warner Brothers Discovery possibly take away from us next? Let's say that Batgirl sucked, okay? Let's say in the test screening, it was awful. By the way, nowhere close to the final effects had, could have been done during this te- test screening. Let's just put that out there right now. Let's say it was awful. What's the worst that could happen? It's an HBO Max movie. It's already done. Again, if this was a, if this was very early on in the process, you're gonna, you're still gonna lose some money. Let's say you're gonna lose thirty million, right? You can go, all right, that this isn't working. Look what they did with the Powerpuff Girls series. Again, different animal. I understand that. There's a lot more money being poured into Batgirl. I get it, but they saw at the time whoever was in charge. I can't remember if it was post merger or not. I think it was pre merger. Everybody involved with Powerpuff Girls series from from the CW looked at it and went, you know what? No, this isn't for us after the pilot. Like, no, we're not doing this. We're going to put this on the shelf. You know, maybe we reshoot, maybe we don't sort of thing. That's when you do this. You do this early on in the process. And, of course, they released the statement, oh, no, Leslie Grace, she's a wonderful actress. Nothing to do with her performance at all. We love her. And there's supposedly deals, you know, to work on something with them in the future, in the directors, blah, blah, blah. Would you want to, at this stage, you get this late in the game and have the rug pulled out from under you? Yeah, I don't know that if I'm a director or an actor or anything like that, I'm lining up at Warner Brothers Discovery's door right now looking to put a project up. I understand, too, the focus is going to be on theatrical, but you know what DC did when they were getting their asses kicked in the theaters by Marvel Studios? They hunkered down and owned the TV landscape, owned it. Marvel had zero legitimate presence on television when the Arrowverse was at its peak, when DC was putting out wonderful animated movies, still are, by the way, and hopefully that continues. Who knows with that as well? DC owned the TV landscape and occasionally throwing out a direct-to-HBO Max movie is not the end of the world. Now, apparently that is not the opinion of the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, who does not think that spending a ton of money on these HBO Max originals is worthwhile. But you know what? Who the, you know who that worked for? Netflix, Prime Video, Disney Plus is starting to do the same thing. So are these all people that are smarter than you or just willing to spend more money than you? That's the big question that you have to ask yourself right now. Because guess what? Marvel's now caught up or past you in the TV landscape as far as DC is concerned. And that's just a fact. It's not like Marvel's done everything right. 
but they've certainly caught up really quickly and just driven right on past DC, who seems to be canceling everything. And every DC fan, including myself, is holding on to Superman and Lois with both hands, hoping that thing doesn't fly away at the end of this season as well. Because you could basically, you know, I've already signed the, the cancellation notice for Stargirl, and I love that show. I hate that I have to say that out loud, but that's how I feel. What do you think is going to drive traffic to HBO Max? Diners, drive-ins, and dives, and a cavalcade of low-budget, low-creative reality shows? Come on. This is where we're at with Warner Brothers Discovery right now. Not being able to trust a single thing that they're putting out or doing because of cost-cutting measures. And if you think you're going to be making a ton of money back by canceling things and removing things and continuing to piss your fans off, that is not a sound business strategy, in my opinion. I don't think that doing things that way is the right way. And the optics of that not only goes to your fans, but goes to the people who want to do business with you as well, whether it be in front of the camera or behind it. Because you keep burning those bridges like that, and that is not something that's going to help you. And who's going to want to get involved if they don't know whether or not in three, six, nine months, or maybe a year, if their project's even going to happen after they put all of that sweat equity into it. That's something that you need to think about grand scheme of things. And I know that maybe Batgirl isn't the tent pole to drive the flag into right now, as far as this is concerned, but it's the culmination of all of these things. It's adding up really, really quickly. And if Warner Brothers Discovery doesn't do something in good faith here really, really soon, they could be looking at a world of hurt in the court of public opinion, not just with DC fans, but fans of any Warner Brothers property in general. And that's just my opinion on that. So you say you got a 10-year plan for DC? Let's see it. Let's see this actually come to fruition this time and find out what happens. I want to be wrong about so much of this, okay? I will say that for sure. I want to be wrong, and I really, really hope that I am. But the way things are looking right now, and after that investor's call and, and some of the stuff that was revealed there, I, I, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll just see what happens. The one good thing, I feel like I get one good piece of news from Warner Brothers in, so I will do that now really quickly. And that is that Lady Gaga is officially joining the sequel for the Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix that will be out now, we know, on October the 4th. 2024. Now, what's the good news here, you say? And that is Lady Gaga. If you've not seen anything that she's been in, whether it be House of Gucci, Star is Born, whether you pick the thing that she's been in, she is a legit great actress. She is very, very good. She's been nominated for Academy Awards for a reason. The, the win she had was for original song, so that that's what she does. You expect that. You don't. You didn't expect her at first to be a, gr- a great actress, and that she has proven to be. Now, while that wasn't officially announced on Todd Phillips, the director's Instagram page, that she's going to be Harley Quinn. Yeah, I mean it's red and black. The 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 animation that they show. It's the two of them dancing together. The movie's probably going to be set in Arkham a lot because of you know how the first one ended. You can kind of read between the lines here. Now, could this be a Joker movie thing where they kind of take a left turn on this a little bit and call her something other than Harley Quinn? Sure, possible. I don't know why you'd do that, but it's certainly possible that they could do that. I, but it'll be very interesting to see how they try to capture this relationship. But getting a, someone like Lady Gaga involved in this is kind of raising the quality of what we could get. And you kind of knew that that would be the case 
with Joaquin Phoenix. And by the way, this is not shade on Margot Robbie at all. At all. Mar- Margot Robbie's being asked to play a very different version of Harley Quinn in a much more fun-centric movie and mo- or movies, however you want to put it. She could play the serious Harley if she wanted to. And I say serious in the most, you know, light of terms because we're still talking about Harley Quinn here. But Margot Robbie is not incapable of doing this. But what Lady Gaga will bring is a very different take to what's already a very different vibe from this Joker movie in the first place. So having someone like her play Harley kind of fits the vibe for what Todd Phillips is going for here with a Joker movie and the sequel, which we will see on October the 4th in 2024. Got a while ago before we see this one. Quickly talking about some trailers. We've got a new release date for Andor, the Star Wars series based on, of course, Cassian Andor, the the Rogue One character. And we've got September 21st now, 2022, is when that series is going to premiere its first three episodes on Disney+. And I, what I loved about this trailer was that Yes, you see the beginnings of the rebellion. You know that's what the show is about, is about anyway. But you also see how it's approached. Like these fat cat imperial folks don't just pay attention because they're so proud of themselves. You could just sneak right up on them if you act like you belong. And that is a very interesting way to put it. And it's you also kind of see in this trailer where some of the underlings of the empire try to get, be like, look, people are upset. And people are starting to fight back a little bit. And maybe we should pay attention to this. And you see the you kind of see the big wigs going, ah, ah, nah, we're fine. We're the Empire. We're good. People love us. No, they don't. So that you, you kind of almost see how this whole thing could have been avoided if somebody would have just been paying attention or if somebody would have realized that they weren't necessarily doing something perfectly. And then you see kind of how Cassie and kind of, kind of works his way through this and how th- things sort of sort of start for him and the inner workings and how this, you know the Senate is kind of involved in this in a, in a backdoor way as well. So yeah, this this has a lot of intrigue into it. Now, can they put it all together and make it exciting and make it a, a worthy entry into this, especially since Rogue One was one of the better Star Wars movies, probably the best Star Wars spin-off movie so far. So, yeah, you've you've definitely got to you, you're going into this with a little bit bigger expectations, I think. But I really think that they can bring it home if they can do this thing correctly. What I didn't expect was a trailer for something called Cars on the Road, which is a series based on, of course, the beloved movie franchise of Cars, and we're going to see that on Disney Plus Day on September the eighth, and it's basically a cross country road trip. For Lightning McQueen and Mater, and they're going to go to his, meet his sister. His sister's getting married. Mater's sister's getting married, and you kind of see, you know, the trouble that they get into traveling across the country. At one point in the trailer, it looks like there's a Mad Max esque kind of adventure that they go on. In in one of these episodes, you see it like ghosts or specter cars or something like that. And you see a bunch of different villains, a bunch of different characters that you'll meet along the way. There's a circus at one point, so. This one just looks like it's a lot of fun and something very different for Cars, which I love. After three movies, it's nice to see them kind of shaking things up a little bit with a series like this. And it just continues Disney's you know, adaptation of their animated films into animated series. 
and which we saw that with Monsters Inc. and Monsters at Work and things like that. And it, it's this, of course, not the first time this is going to happen. So more of this, if this one's successful anyway, more of this. I like that they're trying to do this. We just got Baymax. Now it looks like we're going to be getting cars on the road on September the 8th. Speaking of family programming, a new limited series from Netflix is going to be coming out on August the 24th. And it's called Lost Ollie. Yes, this is about a lost toy trying to find his way back home to his owner, Billy. And they've got this very strong bond. This, this Some bully rips Ollie away from Billy. And that's how Ollie ends up getting lost in the first place. And then it's the adventure on how Ollie gets back. It's interesting because, to me, this is not Toy Story. I know that I've seen that a lot on social media. And I get why you'd make that connection. This is definitely not Toy Story for me anyway. And it's live action for one. So that's, you know, that already makes it a little bit different. But at the same time, it just has a different tenor, different vibe to it. It's almost like you've got some, obviously there's some Toy Story vibes. I'm not going to say there aren't any. But you've got Toy Story kind of meets an American tale a little bit, if that that makes sense. So I kind of get the two things that are mixed together. There, especially with with Ollie, I, and I draw some parallels to to Fievel there a little bit from American Tale. Not a ton. I'm not saying that this is exactly like that. Don't get me wrong, but it just sort of feels like there's a there's a mashup here going on. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, and it looks like it's going to be beautifully shot. Now, how these performances come through will be an interesting part of how successful this is going to be. But this is one I'm excited to watch. I know that it's going to be an emotional ride, though, so I'm, I'm kind of preparing myself for that in advance. And we got, I think it's four episodes that we're going to get of this limited series. And, yeah, of course we want Ollie to find his way back home. We'll see if that happens on August the 24th. Thanks again for listening to this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I want to thank my wonderful guests, obviously the cast of The Sandman and also Tony Guru for talking about Motherland Fort Salem. Also, thanks for following along on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram, at Down and Nerdy on Facebook, at Down and Nerdy Pod on TikTok if you want to start following on TikTok as well. You can find everything, though, at downandnerdypodcast.com and also make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your support means everything to the success of this show, and I really, really appreciate it. If you're already doing that, some more giveaways giving coming up too on social media. So make sure you keep your eyes out for that. And as always, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Hi, I'm Madigan from your angry neighborhood feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.